All right. Well, despite the fact that, like Sheila mentioned with the kids, that this week is back to school week, and most students are going back to school, but once, at least the ones in the center school room I was talking to, the majority of them were not excited at all. The younger kids seem to be excited, older kids not so much. But despite the fact that this is back to school week, which for a student means the summer is over, it actually is not over. Because summer is not over officially until September 22nd, which means we're still in summer, which also means then that we're still in gleaning some Genesis. So today, we turn to Genesis chapter 26 and chapter 27. We're not going to read both the chapters its entirety. We do have a rather lengthy reading a little bit later. But we're going to look today into lies and deception. The chapters today we'll discuss and read and have the message from is troubling for a lot of people, especially on the surface, because it does involve lying and deception. And lying and deception to gain an advantage over others is always destructive and should really have no place among believers. But then again, we know we're not perfect people, and we know we're going to fail at times. Even within the story of the patriarch of Abraham, which we touched upon a few weeks ago, I mean, Abraham, a, known, a man known for his faithfulness, even he still had times of imperfection. Certainly when he had his wife Sarah to lie to Pharaoh and to Abimelech that she was his wife, was his sister, when in fact she, he was his, his wife. So that particular sin for that moment with Sarah to Abimelech <laughs> nearly got her married to Abimelech. But rather interesting is the fact that we see today as we think about that sin that Sarah had with Abimelech in saying that she was Abraham, her husband's sister rather than wife, the interesting is repeated by Abraham's son Isaac with his wife Rebekah, which will be our first reading today in Genesis 26. So we're going to touch upon lying and deception today. But here's the thing maybe we need to learn from it all. That lying and deception is never constructive is always typically doing more harm than good, and often even damaging relationships. And even furthermore, as we grow spiritually, it does not help at all our spiritual growth. So today, we're going to talk about it, yes, but we're going to turn to Genesis 26 and to 27. As mentioned, initially, we're going to find the account of lying deception by Isaac, Abraham's son, who seems to be following that example of Abraham. We'll touch a little bit upon that. And then we'll turn to Genesis 27, the more lengthy reading, as we see what is known as the Great Deception by Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and her son, her favorite son, Jacob. So stand with me this morning as we first turn to Genesis 26. It's only 11 verses we read from the 26th chapter. A bit later, it'll be 29 verses from chapter 27, so it considerably is lengthy. But right now, let's just stand and read the first 11 verses of the 26th chapter book of Genesis. It starts this way. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, 
and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So verse 6, Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Let's pray, Father. Lord, we come before you this morning just reading, Lord, an account about lies and deception in the lives of some of our favorite people. Lord, I pray today that we would look upon the account and begin to see and understand it, but also see how that particular account we're reading and the one to come could also be to our lives an advantage for how we do not need to, as believers, as Christians, be caught up in gossip and lies and things of the nature. We pray, Lord, we heed the message here today. We bring glory to your name. So we thank you, Lord, what shall happen here today and what we shall learn and apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, having read just a little bit of chapter 26, I mean, chapter 26 in itself is just 34 verses. We read just a small portion of it. Well, the small portion we have read then it is perhaps a little disappointing to see that Isaac, here is the son of Abraham, the patriarch, a man known for his faithfulness. Here's a point then of seeing Isaac, his son, so closely follow in his father's footsteps, at least in the nature now of lying about his wife being his sister. Now, in regards to Abraham, we back up just a moment, because Abraham, as I mentioned earlier, actually lied not once but twice about Sarah being his wife. He once lied in Genesis chapter 12 to Pharaoh about Sarah being his wife, said he was her sister. And then again later in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech. So you're thinking, okay, well, you mentioned Abimelech in chapter 20 with Abraham, and now in chapter 26 you got another Abimelech. Is it the same guy? Well, let's clarify. The name Abimelech is just the name of a king in that particular time and era. As noted earlier, Abraham had met with the king Abimelech, who took Sarah at that moment into his harem. Recall that Abraham learned of Sarah, or Abimelech learned of Sarah being Abraham's wife, and then rebuked Abraham because of it. And it sent Abraham away with many possessions. But here then, in chapter 26, six chapters left or more, we see another Abimelech. It is not the same Abimelech. The commentary explains it this way. These Abimelechs were almost certainly not the same individual. Abimelech means my father is king, which makes it a dynastic title. The kings of Gerar, who had many ethnic connections with the Philistines, named the rulers Abimelech apparently for many generations. The earlier Abimelech had drawn up a covenant with Abraham, 
But the present ruler seems to know nothing of it and must establish a treaty with Isaac. So they're different men. And Abimelech was just a word given to the king at that particular time. But having said that, then analyzing the actions now of both Abraham and of Isaac, I see that they're somewhat selfish. I mean, that they asked, they asked their wives to lie about being their sister to protect their lives. To me, that's selfish. And in each instance, the deception about being their sister was due to the fact that they thought that whether Abraham or Isaac, either one thought that when the ruler found out, the men of the area found out that that actually was their wife rather than their sister, it could end their life. That's selfishness. Yeah, I spared their life with the lie, though. So you begin the process that maybe you're thinking, well, as we think about lies and deception now of Isaac, who, yeah, is following his father's footsteps and actions, maybe, maybe that particular lie or deception is not so bad because it saved their life. Well, if that's the thought we're starting to entertain, let's take a quick time out and ask a couple of questions specifically like this. What about lying and deception in general in the lives of believers? Is it permissible? Is it excusable, at least sometimes? I mean, consider that Rahab, he, she lied to protect the, the spies that came to Jericho. Or what about missionaries that go into foreign lands like China or North Korea or Laos or wherever may be serving and who are there as a teacher, but also to proclaim the good news? Is there deception involved? Where do we draw the line on these things? I mean, how do we communicate these kind of things to our children? Because it can somewhat seem to be confusing. As you contemplate those questions, we're not ready to answer anything yet. We're going to go now to Genesis 27, a more lengthy reading, yes. 29 verses, so stay with me. But let us see another round of lies and deception, great deception, if you will. Some scholars even call it a conspiracy with Rebecca, who's Isaac's wife, and her favorite son, Jacob. You can sit, just listen this time in Genesis 27, chapter, chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. My sons don't answer me in that particular way, by the way. I called and say, What, Dad? I said, What, dude? So, I need to make sure my son understands that when I say, my son, they say, here I am. Verse 2. So he said, Isaac said, Esau, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food they might, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. 
and you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Which mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So verse 14, he went and took them and brought them to his mother. His mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the younger goats she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So in verse 18, he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. He said, Who are you, my son? He said, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. Isaac smelled the smell of the garments and blessed him. And said, See, the smell of my son is of the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. There's the great deception. Written in Genesis chapter 27. The word I think of when I read all through those verses, and there's more to come we're not going to get upon today, but I look at that and say, wow, what a form of manipulation and deceit exercised now by Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and now then of her son, her favorite son, Jacob. So as I think about that, I ask rhetorically, what kind of words come to your mind as you hear this story unfold? I mean, do you think of it being despicable, conniving, manipulative, complete, utter deceit? And they just describe people as cheater? As you hear this story unfold and follow along with me and then think about your reaction to it, you may be thinking, I know people like that. I know people who I would describe as completely manipulative, absolutely conniving, lying, cheating all the time. I mean, it's truly amazing that this is a story of deceit, I mean, for any family of this magnitude, involving the husband and wife and their sons. But this particular family, 
uh, to see deceit and lies and cheating, conniving, manipulation is even more remarkable because this is a family about to be blessed. Recall that God had told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Later in chapter 26, Isaac gets the same kind of blessing. In verse 24, he says, I will bless you and multiply your offspring. So this family, starting with Abraham, filtering down to his sons, Isaac, now to Jacob and Esau, is supposed to get all these blessings as given and stated by the Lord. But I ask myself, are, are they really, are they really blessed? Or are they are there lies and deception causing harm and damage and destruction? Because I look upon the account and look upon their lives later, if even more to read and to come, which we'll get to today, but I see that this is a family really is maybe they're blessed, but they're really also maybe more importantly self-destructive. And why then would I maybe say they're self-destructing when I borrow the words of Warren Worsby? Is it because the members, they're self-destructing because the members of the family substituted scheming for believing so they could each have their own way. That's what's happening here. They don't really believe anymore. They don't really trust. They're substituting manipulation, deceit, scheming to get their own way. Now, in case you don't see that, let's go back to the text once more and dig a little deeper upon the main characters to see how they are self-destructing, how they're substituted scheming for believing. And the first is Isaac, of course. He maybe is one of the main characters of the account. And Isaac selfishly puts himself before the Lord. Look in verses 1 through 4, as we go back to the text without reading it, but recognize that Isaac was sure in the very beginning, verses 1 and 2, he's sure that he's going to die. And as he thinks death is imminent, his greatest desire is to enjoy a good meal at the hand of his favorite son, his favorite cook, Esau. That's what he wants. Now, he's also being sneaky at the same time. But for a moment, compare what's happening as Isaac sees his death is near. Compare what's happened if Isaac, in his latter days, being a little sneaky manipulative as it's about to unfold, as that to some other people that also was near the end of their death. For example, Abraham. We touched upon Abraham before, but one more time with Abraham, as he knew his death was imminent, as soon as death was getting closer, he was now more concerned about how he would get a bride for his son Isaac, written in Genesis 24. Or, or maybe analyze the life of King David. When David came to what he felt was the near the end of his life, he made arrangements for the temple to be built through his son Solomon, as written in 1 Kings. When Paul was burdened before his martyrdom that he knew would occur, he found Timothy and encouraged Timothy to be faithful to preach the word, as written in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But here's Isaac. What does Isaac do when he thinks death is near? What does Isaac do? He played God. That may seem rather harsh, but remember, God had told Isaac and Rebekah these words in Genesis 25, 23. He said, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. But here it is. 
the older shall serve the younger. Which means then that when the boys were born, Esau came out first, Jacob was the second. When the boys were, go, were born, God told Isaac and Rebekah that Jacob, the younger son, was, would receive the covenant blessing that Esau would be subject to his younger brother Jacob. Yet Isaac then now is circumventing all that, planning to give Esau the blessing. So Isaac, in what he thought was his soon death, decides to give the blessing to his favorite son, Esau. But really, unknowingly to Isaac, who, as scholars say, is about 137 years old at this particular moment, he's going to live for another 43 years. The text tells us his eyesight is gone. So yeah, maybe with his eyesight deteriorating, maybe for the next 43 years, he's going to lay around and maybe not do some things he used to be able to do. But notice how he thinks it's imminent of his death coming up, so he decides to help God and arrange a secret ceremony to extend a blessing, the covenant blessing, to his favorite son, to Esau. I suggest to you his actions are selfish and they're sneaky. And he might have gotten by with it had it not been for his very manipulative wife, Rebecca, who overhears the plan and herself then circumvents, coming up with her own little favorite scheme for her favorite son, Jacob. So the other two main characters now are Rebecca and Jacob, who I label as the masters of deception. In the text, Rebecca's deceitful heart is clearly revealed. She creates a plan, a scheme to allow her favorite son to pretend to pretend to be his brother Esau. Notice how in verses one through or five through ten, it involves preparing a meal. Esau was to go in the field, be a hunter, and obtain game, and bring it back, kill it, and prepare it for his dad. But what Rebecca's plan is is to go out with the flock, take two of the best goats, bring them back, slaughter them, kill them, eat, and, and prepare them for food. That's the plan. Rebecca is very manipulative. But notice how Jacob really is no different. And he seems to be a really, very willing participant. Now look at verses 11 through 14. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. I did hear you say, I did read for myself, that Jacob was very concerned about making sure he might lose the blessing, the mocking, and so forth. Yeah, okay, Jacob says that. Does he mean it? I mean, Jacob, yeah, is initially concerned about the boy's physical differences, and maybe the mocking that would occur. But with his mother's encouragement, he goes right along with the plan. He goes and gets the goats and brings them back to her to prepare the meal. So notice in our reality, what we have occurring here then is a complete breakdown of moral and spiritual principles. In the actions of Jacob, what we learn is he appears to be more concerned about the possibility of failure than the lack of upholding moral standards. And Rebecca, of course, I mean, she's completely unworried. She must know she has one over on Isaac. Now, Isaac is a dimwit and blind, and she can get by with it. And she continues for her son to press on. And he does. But noticing the deception continues to build. Rebecca has thought of everything. The clothing, the hair, the smell. She's thinking of it all. 
verses 15 through 17, she tells her favorite son, Jacob, get the best garments of your brother. Put them on, son. Put them on. We don't want him to find out that's not you. Get the skins of the young goat, probably the ones that killed, right? Probably the ones that are preparing for the meal. Take their skins, put them on your hands and the back of his neck. So preparing all that with the food cooking and simmering. And then comes time then for him to take it to dad. Verses 21 through 25, Jacob has the garments on, has his skin to have the same kind of feel as Esau. But you bring it, he brings it to dad, and notice how Isaac, Isaac is suspicious. And he, they almost get caught with the scheme and the plan. Isaac is suspicious really of two things. Number one, he's completely curious of how did this happen so fast? Did you notice how I, I, Jacob explained that he was able to get the food so fast from the game, pretending to be his brother Esau? Did you catch what he told his dad about how it happened so quickly? He said, God blessed me. Nothing like blaming God and bringing him part of your plan, is it? And the second thing that Isaac, of course, makes him be suspicious is the voice. The one thing that Rebecca cannot control. She can control the, the, the smell, the clothing, the hair, but the thing she cannot control is that voice. But then you see that Isaac, I mean, I don't understand Isaac completely. He, he's so caught up into wanting this food. That must have been some great dinner, huh? I would ask for a show of hands of the men how many times their wife would prepare for them a dinner this delicious, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, the men or the women. So we're not going to ask the question. But that must have been a great morsel of food being prepared. And, and Isaac wants it so bad in his blindness, and he, despite the fact that he's a little bit suspicious, it just happens anyway. And now with his belly full, Isaac conveys the blessing to who he thinks is Esau, which is really Jacob. And Jacob gets, as you find in verses 26 to 30, material prosperity, preference among the nations, certainly preference among the family, and the passing on of God's blessing to others. In sum, it is a very clever, well-thought-out, manipulative scheme devised by Rebecca for her favorite son, Jacob. It is the great deception. You get master manipulator Rebecca and conniving sidekick Jacob. Their plan involved several lives, a lot of deceit to accomplish their means. It is selfish, it is sneaky, it is manipulative, it is damaging, it is destructive. Now, as a recap of the story of a self destructing family exercising the deceit manipulation, so spelled out here in Scripture, rather than belief and faith, in, faith and trust, I think about God's plan of work. Remember, God has said that the younger was going to be over the older. The older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. So I begin to think about God's plan of work. And I ask myself a question. Is it the seat that unfolds in the Scripture here part of God's plan? My first thought is probably it is not. Or it couldn't surely be. But also know that God can work for good all the things that people intend to be bad or to harm. The commentary stated, 
One of the most amazing things about God is his ability to use anything and everything, even bad circumstances and our wrong choices, to bring about his own good and perfect will. We may have to suffer the consequences of our wrong choices while God is working out his plan, but his will cannot be undone. God's purposes will ultimately prevail. If you will, it's the essence of Romans 8.28, that God can bring good from any situation. So we see repeatedly in Scripture, God's will completed, even when the people, his people, are manipulative. They're deceitful, they're conniving, they're just dishonest, no-good sinners. We see it repeatedly in Scripture how he seemed to make good from those situations. So perhaps here now he has as well. But let's try to make more sense from this deceit and the lies written in chapter 26 and 27. Remember the questions we asked earlier? I mean, what about lying and deception in general for believers? Is, is, is it permissible? Is there a certain amount that we're allowed to get by with? Is it excusable? I mean, again, Rahab lied to the spies, and it all went well for them. What about those missionaries going into other countries? And basically what we're asking here for a few moments, work with me, is that are lies and deception ever acceptable behavior? Or as I was looking at psychology today last week, analyzing the question, is lying ever the right thing to do? Are there situations in which dishonesty is morally justified? Is there situations in which dishonesty is morally justified? Is Vivian asleep? Don't let her hear this. Is it right for us to tell our children that the toys came from Santa? Is it right that a doctor tells a family member that their loved one died quickly and peacefully, even though honestly they suffered a horrible death? Regarding those particular situations, there's a psychologist named Dr. Christian Hart who states that most people would argue that lying to people in order to swindle them out of money would be immoral. Okay, now we could probably say, yeah, that probably makes sense. When you lie to someone to get an advantage, like what's happening here in the account, that seems to be pretty immoral. Rebecca and her son Jacob and even Isaac, they, they had some immorality they were practicing here with their lies and deceit. They were trying to swindle each other into that covenant blessing. And we would suggest then, like many people, that that would completely be immoral, to swindle people out of money or a blessing. But what about those white little lies that we sometimes tell? Are they, are they equally deceptive and immoral? To that particular question, Dr. Hart actually makes a distinction among types of lies and deceptions. Here's his words. Some deception researchers have differentiated between broad classes of lies. One such category is a self-interested lie. This type of lie is exploitative in nature. Liars tell these types of lies in order to gain, and re gain or retain an advantage over others. Another category of lie is the other-oriented lie. These lies are told with a motivation to help protect others. An example is telling someone their new haircut looks great 
when it really doesn't. Or when someone is trying to lose weight and say the cookies are gone when in fact they are not. So, a distinction among lies and deception. You get the self-interested and the other-oriented. So, y'all looking at me listening? It's going to be time for confession, right? How many of us have done the other-oriented lie? I have. I mean, I've done things many times to protect people and really didn't tell the truth in it. I mean, how many times have you been somewhere, it could be Christmas or Thanksgiving, situations unfolding, and you're eating the meal, and you think, oh, God, this is, this is awful. This is terrible food. But the person who prepared it, you don't tell them that, do you? When they ask specifically, do you like the pie? You say, yes, the pie is good. When the pie is awful, you want to spit it out of your mouth. There was an episode of Friends who had Rachel had made some food. She was going to a cookbook or some sort of device to help her make this cook this food, and she makes a cake. She made cake out of flour and sugar, all the things you make cake out of, and meat. They look at it, they taste of it, they can't stand it, they want to spit it out of their mouth. But Joey, of course, Joey eats it and can't get enough of it. But she says, Rachel asked the, the, her friends, is the cake good? What they say? Yes, it's good. It's awful. That's an other-oriented lie. We've all done that probably. How many times have you heard or been in a situation you have someone who's shopping, they're trying on clothes, it might be a dress. She comes out and says, does this dress look good on me? I say, yes, ma'am, that looks great on you. That's exactly right. It's an other-oriented lie. What I should have done is said, no, Sheila, that dress makes you look horrible. That's what I did whenever she cooked deer meat for the first time. We was living in Bloomington, and she wasn't used to cooking deer meat, and she cooked it, y'all. It was so bad a dog wouldn't eat it. I mean, it was horrible. It tasted worse than liver. I mean, it was awful stuff. I mean, it had to hurt and get rid of The stink in the apartment was awful. I mean, she has now learned since then, okay, it's better today. But that first time she cooked it, man, it was bad. The first time she ever made what I call a uh, fruit salad, she took a friend and cooked a can of fruit cocktail and opened it up. I said, what is this? She said, your fruit salad. I said, no, it is not. I was used to my mom making fruit salad from scratch, not a can. I should have told her, Sheila, no more of this. It's an other-oriented lie. We've been caught up in it many times in our lives. So the question really now becomes this then. Are both the self-interested and the other-oriented lies, are both of them immoral? Here's how Hart answers that question. Is most people believe that the exploitative, self-interested lives are immoral, but are less concerned about the moral position of the other-oriented lives. And that can be true of many of us. We're less concerned about those little things that we may be doing to protect people when it comes to lying and deception. But we find somebody swindling, taking advantage, where we say, yes, that is absolutely positively immoral. So we tend to rationalize it, justify it, make excuses. So let's just ask the question a different way then. Should a believer, a Christian, a follower, disciple of Christ, which is a Christian, 
you and me, should we tell an other-oriented lie even to protect someone's feelings? Now, before we answer the question, let me go to a study that has found this. It said lying is ingrained into human beings. By the age of four, 90% of the children have grasped the concept of lying. According to a study by the University of Massachusetts, 60% of adults cannot hold a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. That's remarkable. It's something we do. It's something we get caught up in. And we can justify it, rationalize it. It's an other-oriented life. We're just trying to protect those we love. But is it still right? Let's get back to the question. Maybe a scenario helps that maybe kind of adds to it, okay? So, suggest, so imagine yourself. A group of Christians are in a home in North Korea. In North Korea, it is forbidden to have worship or Bible study in the home. You can't even have a Bible. So the authorities then come to the house, suspicious that something may be going on within. They come to the house, knock on the door. The Christian believer comes to the door with the study going on in the background. The believer is now hidden. And he comes and says, is there anything suspicious happening here, like worship to a God? And, of course, the Christian believer says, no, that's not happening. And they repeatedly state that it's not happening and actually convince the authorities it is not within the home, not within the confines of the perimeter of the house. Now, the Christians, which you may be part of if you were there, may have been spared persecution. But technically, that was a lie. Was it wrong? Was it immoral? We want to say it's not. But if we really analyze it, Based upon Scripture, it is. It is a lie and equates to sin. Proverbs 12.22, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. I mean, the thing is, we as humans, we can differentiate sin. We can put it on different levels, even categorize it. But Jesus, he never differentiated, never made different degrees about sin. You may recall in the Sermon on the Mount, he was angry because someone, he said, anybody who is angry is the same as murdering them. He said, anybody who lustfully looks at a woman is also committing adultery. I mean, he called it like it is. A sin's a sin. And we just need to face it then. Anytime we practice any of these different things, the deception, lying, of any degree, we're imperfect people and we have sin in our lives. I mean, in short, we're, we're capable of lying because we're just imperfect people. But here's the thing that can perhaps provide comfort for us then. That while we're imperfect people caught up into all this mess, here's the thing that we need to know. That while we're imperfect, lying sinners at times, God is and always will be perfect. Because of this, God cannot lie and still be perfect. It would be very contra contradictory to his nature. And that should give each and every one of us comfort. Because we can know at all the times that God is never lying to us. When God promises us something, he's not lying to us. It's going to happen. It will come true. We can actually lie to our children all we want to about a certain, certain something happening. But God gives us a promise and it always comes true. Imagine, if you will, a God who lied. 
If, if God lied, we would have absolutely no assurance that we're actually saved. That things will actually turn out to be good. And that God himself is good. And the fact that God does not and cannot lie is one of the very things that make him God. So, what then should we remember? What should we do whenever we get to the point where we're going to rationalize the lie or deception and we get ready to get caught up in it? What should we do? Well, it seems too simple. If we're tempted to lie, we should remember our Savior's following. Many of you probably remember there was years ago bracelets, t-shirts, hats, WWJD. Remember those? What would Jesus do? It's just as simple as that. When we're getting really caught up in any kind of sin, we just need to remember what would Jesus do? Because Jesus was perfect. We're not perfect, but he was perfect. And when it comes to watching, following Jesus, we got to remember that here was Jesus, the son, the only son of God, who had Gethsemane. Innocent as he was at Gethsemane, he was taken captured before a corrupt court and asked directly if he was the son of God. Did he deny it? Did he lie? No. He knew he was the son of God. He stated he was the son of God, and he said he was, and he was put to death for it. Now imagine at the time that he was asked the question, people who were nearby listening thought, what a fool. Just lie about it, dude, and you'll be able to walk free. But he didn't. The fact that Jesus told the truth, even in the horrible situation he was facing at the moment, is the very reason that we all have hope of salvation. His truth-telling paved the way for him to conquer sin and death. Sometimes we might think a little lie here or there is going to bring about a greater good. If we start to think that, we need to remember this. That the Bible never says, don't lie unless you think it would be beneficial. There's no such scripture. Don't lie unless you think it's going to be beneficial. Jesus didn't lie. He saved the world. The martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7 could have lied about being a Christian. But he, he didn't lie. He told the truth. And he was stoned because of it. But when he was stoned, that took the person who was holding, holding the coats of the people who stoned Stephen, Saul, who became Paul, and he went out, God used that situation, he became the person who brought the good news to the Gentile world. So lying then shows that we do not trust God to take care of us. This was happening in the count. Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob did not trust God. They exercised deceit for their own good. Selfishly, they were manipulative, intentionally using lies and deception to gain the advantage. At times, we might also think that we can maneuver a situation by ourselves toward our best interest, or even for the greater good of a little bit of lie. But instead, we must cling to the truth, do what God says, and follow Him and trust Him. Remember, most often lies and deception are destructive, even damaging relationships. The Bible, God's Word, calls us to live in honest fellowship with one another and with God. Ephesians 4.15 says we find that speaking the truth in love is a mark of spiritual maturity. Lastly and finally, Jesus calls himself, what he call himself in John 4.16? The way, the truth, and the life. 
So as followers of Christ, as Christians, believers, just simply let us follow the truth and trust him with all of our hearts. Father, Lord, we thank you for the message today. Not an easy one, Lord, perhaps to listen to about lies and deception and even to maybe admit that we sometimes have that in our lives. But Lord, it's a message you have chosen for us today as we get into the text. Lord, I pray for all of us today to not be caught up into the way of the world. Now, sometimes the world will tell us that to get ahead, you must have lies and deceit, manipulation. Must be a little conniving at times, Lord, according to the way of the world. And I pray today, Lord, that we would just rebuke that and recognize the fact that we are to live a different life. That we are believers, Christians, and we are a follower, our King, Lord Jesus. So for each person here today, let us just make a decision to just follow you. And live that life as perfect as we possibly can. Yeah, we may fail here occasionally, Lord. But let us strive to live the perfect life possible to bring you glory. So help us, Lord. Put away any deceit, lies, mischiefs, gospel. And let you get the glory for our actions and words and even our thoughts. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.